All right, today we're in Exodus chapter 7. We're going to go to halfway through 8. We're going to start but not finish the uh, arguably the most powerful display of God's power in maybe all the Old Testament um, and maybe the most memorable display of power throughout the entire Bible for some people. Uh, we're tracking the story of Moses, but something that we've been saying is that Moses really is just a vessel. It's something that we're noticing, that God is the hero, God is the power. And in chapter 3... God gave Moses a, a few tricks that he could do, right? Uh, he said, Moses, yeah, I want you to go and uh, talk to Pharaoh and talk to Israel, and I want you to convince them who I am. You know, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. Uh, and he gives Moses the ability to turn his staff into a snake. And then he, he gives him the ability to, uh, to, uh, to turn his hand leprous. He could like put it in his cloak, take it out, it's leprous, put it back in, take it out, and it's, it's healthy again. And then he gives him the, the ability to turn uh, water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and when it hits the ground, it'll turn to blood. So he gives him these, these three little tricks that he could do. That'll, that'll be enough to convince Israel, you know, when he goes back there. They've been in slave, slavery for 400 years, and then he'll just be like, you know, God is ready to, uh, to do some, something really crazy and watch this. And when, when he does that, Israel will say, okay, God is, is working among us. And these are the same signs that he's supposed to perform in front of Pharaoh in order to convince Pharaoh that God is among them and, uh, and Pharaoh needs to let Israel go. These are oddly specific signs, though, and uh, part of me sometimes wonders, why did God pick those signs? You know, I, I guess he could have picked any sign, right? He could have he had him uh, just change a cat to a dog, or he could have a bald man immediately regrow hair or something like that. He could, he could pick any sign he wants, so any sign that he picked, then I'd still go, why did he pick those signs? You know, maybe, maybe that's the case. But those are the signs that God chose. Uh, maybe he had a reason for them, maybe not. The text doesn't tell us. In any case, God has thoroughly equipped Moses for this incredible task at hand, which will be to reveal God's person and power, right? So that the whole world will, will know the name of Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, okay? If you remember from last week, Moses and his brother Aaron, they went to speak to Pharaoh in chapter 5, and it didn't go well. Uh, they said, Yahweh... The God of, the, of Israel says, let my people go. And do you remember Pharaoh's response? I'll show you in chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So the point of tension is on who is Yahweh. I don't know Yahweh. And God is making his name known, his person, his power, right? Everything that comes with his name. And that's still the same kind of thing that goes on in the New Testament, right? How do we react to the name of God, to the name of Jesus? Do we pray in Jesus' name? Do we live in Jesus' name, right? Do we baptize in, in Jesus' name, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Uh, at the name of Jesus, how do we respond, it, there's still something going on there. That theme still travels through. At his name, will we bow down and worship? Now, Pharaoh was not only uncooperative, but he's very offended and insulted that these two ridiculous Hebrew slaves would make demands of him, right? Who are these guys coming in here to, to talk to me? So he sentences all of Israel. He's like, well, since you asked, here's what I'll do in response. And he sentences all of Israel, which is two to three million slaves uh, in the Egyptian empire. 
he sentences them to work even harder. They have to make the same number of bricks every day, but they have to kind of go gather their own straw as ingredients, as materials to, uh, to make the bricks. So that makes the, the, the life of the slave much harder. The Israelites, or the Hebrews, well, I'll use that interchangeably, uh, Israelites, Hebrews, Jews, um, but they, you know, they respond to that by they hate Moses and they hate Aaron. And then that makes Moses blame God. He's like, well, thanks a lot, God. Why'd you send me? What, what was the whole point of that? You know, I, I did the thing that you told me to do, and then it backfired, so good going. So everything's a mess. Israel doesn't trust God. Moses has no idea what he's doing. He's making mistakes everywhere. No one here looks good. No one's the hope for a happy ending. No one. If ever you read Exodus thinking Moses was the good guy and he was the model, uh, that is not the case. No one looks good. No one's the hope for a happy ending except God. God had already predicted how this was going to go in chapter 4. He said, Pharaoh's not going to listen. Uh, and he's like, he's, he's not going to listen, so I'm going to have to do my wonders through you, Moses. And Moses wasn't really paying attention to, uh, to the order of events here. And it's time. It's time to do some wonders. So this will happen by way of 10 plagues. They're not actually plagues, like they're not all diseases. When we say the word plague, it usually means like an epidemic of some sort. But they're 10 disasters, 10 cataclysms, 10 catastrophes. Some of them uh, are, are, are diseases that are, you know, like in the, in the body, you get sick. Others are like natural phenomena. And these 10 epic level disasters are all bundled together, so we call them the 10 plagues. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's going, we're going to start the conversation. We're not going to get to end it. We'll have to pick it up next week and then end it the week after that. Okay, so let's start with our structure. Uh, we're going to begin with how Moses and Aaron speak to Pharaoh again in chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Then I'll, I'll give you a, a bit of an introduction to the plagues. I just want to talk about the plagues for a second, and then we'll get into the plagues. Plague 1 is verses 14 to 25. Plague 2 gets into chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. And then plague 3 gets into uh, chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, and we'll have to stop there. And I'll give you the, what the plagues are as we go. You'll pick it up because we'll be reading the text, okay? Let's start with Moses and Aaron speak to Pharaoh again in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Because the boys are back in town, they've walked up to Pharaoh, and they're ready to go, you know, back at it with the king of Egypt, and once again, they're going to give the same basic message, right? God, the, uh, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. So verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, and Yahweh said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother and Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, which means my armies, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. All right, now just like Moses is the spokesperson for God, Aaron is the spokesperson for Moses. That's why 
God gives that like SAT analogy. He's like, God is to Moses, is to Pharaoh, as Moses is to Aaron, is to, is to Pharaoh. You know, that, it, that's why he says that in the beginning, right? But he's basically saying, Aaron is your spokesperson, just like you're my spokesperson, okay? Uh, Pharaoh is going to hear this, and he's going to decide not to listen. And then it says, God will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he's even more uncooperative, And that word harden, if you remember from last week, it means strengthen or fortify. God doesn't change his mind. He just kind of intensifies what uh, what Pharaoh has already decided. Pharaoh was uh, was not going to let Israel go. So God just kind of intensified that. And I don't even think that's like mind control. I think he used circumstances and and external stimuli, I guess, uh, for Pharaoh to then just decide on his own. I think there's a, you know, there are, there's cooperation that's kind of happening there. I could be wrong, maybe. But Pharaoh's heart will be hard. God will do wonders, and Pharaoh won't even budge a little. God will do miracles. Pharaoh won't care. God will do plagues, and it's not going to matter. If, uh, you know, if a single miracle makes Pharaoh surrender, if, uh, you know, if he sees uh, Moses turn his staff into a snake, and Pharaoh goes, oh, no, I don't like that. Snakes, right? Your, your, your people can go. If he does that, uh, right after that moment, everything will be quickly forgotten. No one's going to remember, you know, what happened. History can be rewritten, all that stuff, right? So this is going to drag on for 10 plagues. And it's going to be to the point where, where everyone's like, are you kidding me, Pharaoh? Like, why would you, why, why would you just stay on course? Why, like, change your mind, right? At the end of it, God will be so obvious, and God will be so terrifying, and God will be so unstoppable that Pharaoh and all Egypt will know the name of Yahweh. It doesn't mean that they'll repent and love him and trust him, but they will bow down and worship. They will. They will tremble. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. So they, uh, they did just as Yahweh commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Okay, hang on. Uh, I like this picture of these two 80-year-old guys that God will still use to make a difference. That gives me hope. But what does that look like, right? Two just 80-year-old guys walking into Pharaoh's court, like, and they're like, let my people go, right? What does that look like? Uh, it's got to be like a ridiculous moment. Where Pharaoh doesn't feel threatened at all by this. And I suspect that God used these two, like, old, decaying, decrepit, debilitated, dehydrated husks of human flesh to walk into that room so that if and when they succeed, no one will be like, I knew those guys could do it, right? They would be like, no way, there is a God, and his name is Yahweh. It's like when Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis, you know, they, had, they, had, uh, they were promised a son. God waited till they were 100 years old and like 90 years old to have a son. Why did he wait till they were like there, you know? They're halfway decomposed. And then they have a kid and people just went, that's God. 
And I think that's what's going on here, okay? Now, of course, Pharaoh's going to be like, okay, prove yourselves. Work a miracle, right? Because he's not going to be threatened by these old guys. And in response, he'll probably want to humiliate them. So God finds that totally predictable. That's a natural response that Pharaoh ought to give. You know, if, if you say God is here, prove it. Do something. Show us a sign. Work a miracle, right? Uh, and that's why God prepares Moses and Aaron for this miracle. He gave Moses a few tricks, right? Um, and Pharaoh, by the way, is backed up by his own magicians, the magicians of Egypt, the Egyptian magicians. And, uh, and so th- this is going to be this little contest, right? Um, Pharaoh says, oh, your, your God sent you. Did he prove it? Do a miracle. And then they're going to do it. So verse 10, it says, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. I used to think that Moses and Aaron each had a staff. Okay, you don't care, but I care. I just thought Moses had a staff, Aaron had a staff, and Moses is like, okay, do the thing. And then Moses and Aaron's like, yeah, okay, here we go. <laughs> Stick to snake, right? And uh, that's what I thought would happen. But it, it seems like they share the same staff. Like Moses is like, you, you do it. And then Aaron's like, oh, okay. And then he, he throws it down. Uh, because God gives them the, that staff in chapter 4, verse 17. And then like in verses 15 to 20 of this chapter, uh, you'll see that Aaron is kind of using that staff and stuff. So th- they're like sharing this magic item that they're passing back and forth that God gave them, you know? Uh, Aaron throws this thing down, and, it, uh, and I used to just always think it became a snake, right? It becomes a stick to snake, right? Um, but as I'm like reading this thing in Hebrew, um, it doesn't say snake. Snake is nahas. It says tanin, Serpent. And that's weird because um, it said snake in chapter 4 when God gave him the, the ability to do it. You know, put the, the stick down and it'll become a nahas. But it says Aaron threw this thing down and it became a tanin. It became a serpent. So tanin is usually, uh, it's not a regular snake. It's a large reptile. So that would be the same word used for crocodile. Or uh, sea monster, we sometimes translate that Leviathan in uh, Job 7.12, Isaiah 27, Isaiah 50, 51, and Jeremiah 51. So we kind of have these different moments where... I'll just show you where uh, Job 7. Job 7, it says, am I the sea or a sea monster? A tanin? Uh, Isaiah 27, verse 1, it says, in that day, Yahweh, uh, he will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, and he will slay the dragon." The tanin that is in the sea. Isaiah 51.9. Was it not you who cut Rahav in pieces, who pierced the dragon, the tanin? Jeremiah 51.34. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has swallowed me like a monster, like a tanin. So it's wild to think that the staff became something other than a snake. I, I've just always pictured it as a snake. It seems like that is the appropriate shape for a staff to turn into. But it's possible that it has turned into something a little bit like higher level. I don't know how to say it, right? Uh, 
uh, was it a crocodile, dragon, monster, or just a huge snake? It could be that, right? Just a large reptile. Uh, why does it become a tanin this time instead of a nahas? And I think that's because tanin was also used as an expression of national empires, of kings. Uh, in Ezekiel 29, I'll show you, God calls Pharaoh a tanin. He says, uh, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I am, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great tanin, the great dragon. So he's like, uh, in Ezekiel, which is at a different date later than, than Exodus, but God has said to Pharaoh, he's like, I'm against you, you great tanin. And then here in this moment back in Exodus, he's turned this staff into a tanin, and this tanin will have victory over Pharaoh. So who is the greater tanin? Who is the greater power? Who is the greater force? Who is the greater hero? Now, what's, uh, what's the most mystifying is the fact that the magicians of Egypt were able to do the same thing. What? In, uh, by the way, for a long time, I thought their, their names were Hotep and Hoi um, because of uh, Prince of Egypt, the movie. Did, we actually know their names. Their names are in 2 Timothy 3.8. I don't have it, but uh, if, you, if you were bored, you could just look it up. Their names are Jannies and Jambres. That doesn't sound as cool as Hotep and Hoi, but Jannies and Jambres, uh, these, are the, these are the magicians that, uh, that opposed Moses, uh, and they were able to do the same things. Right? And uh, it's weird because, like, in the historical documents, like uh, the West Car Papyrus, Egyptian magicians could change wax crocodiles into real ones. And then they could change them back to wax. They could reverse their spells. What they would do is they'd grab the tails and then the whole thing would turn to wax again. Um, and then snake charmers had this way of uh, uh, lengthening a snake and, and it stiffens up and they're able to, like, hold it like it's a stick. And then they can kind of like bop it on the head, and then it, it'll kind of turn back into snake form and stuff. So there are, there are things that we've seen in the historical documents, sorry, uh, things that we've read about in the historical documents that say that they were able to do these kinds of things. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But my, uh, you know, my mind immediately goes like, is this real? Right? Could they actually do this? Was this... Was this a magic spell or was this the magic trick? Right? Because magic spell, that means that actual supernatural action has taken place. It's breaking, it, it, it's breaking, it's broken the laws of physics. Uh, it's broken the laws of physics. Something has, has gone on that is outside the natural order. Whereas a magic trick, my son does magic tricks, you know, and that's sleight of hand. It's like misdirection, things like that. So what was going on here? Was it a magic spell or was it a magic trick? Was it supernatural transmutation or was it a stage performance? Now, I know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, I know that Satan can counterfeit miracles. So he has the power to actually just do that kind of stuff. But part of me suspects that this is an illusion. It's a, you know, it's a magic trick. A clever puff of smoke, and then you switch wax crocodile for a real crocodile, or you, you switch a staff for a uh, for a, a real serpent, something like that. M maybe it was actual demonic power that allowed them to do the, the magic spell, or maybe 
this was a magic trick. It's my personal guess. This is a trick. It's a stage show, you know, that uh, Aaron throws the thing down, it becomes a serpent, and then the magicians, they look at each other, and they're like, by the power of Ra, you know, and they, they put on the show, the fog comes out, and I think that something like that is happening. I'll explain that later. Verse 12, for each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. So whether or not the magicians did an actual magic spell or a magic trick, we don't know. The end result still is the same. They lost their staffs, right? Because the tanin that God created had swallowed up the tanins that they created. So God's power swallowed up Egypt's power. It was easy. It was no contest. Everyone saw it. Pharaoh saw it. And yet still he wouldn't listen. Now, let me talk to you about the plagues that are about to come. Let me give you this introduction to the plagues, okay? What's about to happen from here in chapter 7 till the middle of chapter 13 is that God is going to unleash 10 massive plagues on Egypt. And these are signs and wonders that God talked about uh, at the beginning of this chapter, right? He, he said, I'm going to do these signs and wonders. And in verse 4, he called them great acts of judgment, great acts of judgment, and judgment in this context means, doesn't just mean like discerning and deciding, but judgment as in condemnation, sentencing to doom. So great acts of judgment. And the, the question becomes, who is he judging? Like, because this is happening over all of Egypt, the plagues. So God will judge and condemn something or someone. And when you get to the very last plague, he actually tells you who he is judging. Exodus 12, verse 12. It says, I will, uh, God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt. Uh, and then he says, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Right? He says, on all the gods of Egypt, that's on whom I execute judgment. I am Yahweh. Right? So, all the Egyptian gods have their names, and then God says, this is my name. Now let's see whose name you remember. That's the point of tension, the name of God. He's going to terrify the world empire. He's going to shock even the people of Israel with his matchless power and insurmountable will. And most of all, God is using these plagues to pick a fight with the entire Egyptian pantheon of gods. This is God versus the gods. As a side note, I think it might be easy for us to think that, you know, miracles happen a lot in the Bible, and we should just expect miracles in, in our lives. We should always be praying for miracles and stuff. Um, but in the Bible, there are only four major periods uh, of miracles, right? They're not normal to happen all the time. Throughout all the history of, of the world, since the beginning of, of creation till now, there, there are only four major periods of miracles talked about, three of which have happened, one of which has not. So I'll put them on the board. The first is Moses that we're looking at right now. It lasts for about 40 years. The first year is where he does all these plagues, and then like he's wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because Israel done messed up, okay? Second would be Elijah, Elijah and Elisha. That lasts for about 35 years, shared between them. They do a bunch of miracles. It kind of lasts for that long. 
Uh, Elisha continues to prophesy for a while after that, but that's not a miracle. Third is Jesus and the apostles. That lasts for 33 years. If you go with Jesus ministering for three years and then the book of Acts taking about 30 years. Okay? And then the fourth would be the tribulation, the end times. That's seven years. Okay? Uh, that's when end times, uh, miracles and, and supernatural cosmic phenomena will take place. So if you notice this, though, the miracles between the, the, the middle two, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles, okay, those two periods, those miracles seem a lot uh, alike. There, there are healings and making food, resurrecting, helping individual people who are in need. Those miracles tend to do that, okay? But when you look at the first and last one, the, Moses with the plagues and then the tribulation at the end of the time, uh, that's when you see these world-changing, epic-scale, disaster-level events. And they have a lot to do with one another. And, uh, and when it comes to the, these plagues and the tribulation at the end of time, uh, or at, at the end times, excuse me, um, both of those result in God's war on the wicked world empire, and they result in God's people emerging to a promised land or to a millennial kingdom, a, the kingdom that Jesus will establish. In both cases, it's God, he goes to war, destroys his enemy, just annihilates his enemy, and then God's people are established where they need to be. So these 10 plagues are going to help us in understanding the end times. I don't have time for it today, but if you ever want to go to our series on Revelation or First and Second Thessalonians or Isaiah or understanding Israel, someday I'll also do one on Ezekiel and Zechariah. Please convince the overseers to let me do that. All right. Now, of these plagues... There are 10 plagues, right? But let's just talk about the first nine, okay? The first nine. The first nine plagues are arranged in three groups. Plagues one, two, three, which we'll talk about today, and then plagues four, five, six, and then plagues seven, eight, nine, right? So three groups of three. Uh, and they all kind of have like similarities. So in each group, the first plague of each group, so that would be the first, fourth, and seventh plague, in each, uh, in each group, the first plague in each group is always introduced with a warning to Pharaoh when Pharaoh goes down to the Nile. Uh, two out of three times it's mentioned that he's at the Nile, but it's a warning to Pharaoh, okay? In the second plague of each group, there's a remark that, uh, that there's a warning to Pharaoh, but he's at his palace. And then in the last plague of each group, there's no warning at all. The plague just is unleashed. Okay, so there's like a, a, a rhyming kind of action going on, like uh, something of a symmetry happening between these groups. Uh, the groups of plagues increase in severity. The first three plagues, group one, will, by comparison to the others, be something of just an irritation or an inconvenience. Okay, they will be bad, but they won't be like super dangerous, harmful. The rest will be dangerous, harmful. Uh, the second uh, group uh, of plagues will be a little bit more severe, uh, and they'll, they'll start to destroy things. And then the final, uh, final three plagues will be a lot more deadly. Now, the, uh, the, the first three plagues, the irritations, right? And they seem to affect everyone in Egypt indiscriminately. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. 
the, the plague happened and you just have to deal with it. However, after that, on, on the second group and the third group of plagues, Israel is exempt and protected from the power of these plagues, right? So then God's like, I'm, I'm just going to throw down awesome power on Egypt, but my people Israel will be okay. And there will be this, this uh, divine protection on them. Uh, the groups of plagues all state that God's motive is to make his name known. So in the first group of plagues, he says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, he says, uh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh, right? You'll know my name. You will not say, who is this Yahweh? I don't know this Yahweh. You will know who I am. In the second group, in Exodus 8, 22, uh, God says that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth, meaning you'll know who I am and you'll know I'm here, like I'm not aloof, I'm not just sitting out in the heavens, detached and uninterested, I'm in the midst of you. And then third, he says in Exodus 9.14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, right? He reveals the scope and, and force and magnitude of his power, and there's no one and nothing like him in all the earth. You'll know my name you'll know I'm here, and you'll know there's nothing like me. All of these purposes are contained in what God said he would do, especially in verses 4 through 5 of this chapter. Well, let's get to the first plague then, the plague of blood, the plague of blood, okay? Uh, Starting in verse 14, going to 25. This is what it says. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the back of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, that there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Stop there for a second. Okay. Note how in verse 17 and also verse 5 earlier in the chapter, it says Moses holds a staff, he strikes the Nile. Then, in verse 19, it says Aaron is using the staff. He's the one that strikes the Nile. And that's an example of how God is speaking to Pharaoh. uh, Sorry, Moses is speaking to Pharaoh as if he's God. He's like, this is what I'm going to do. And then Aaron will carry it out as his spokesperson. And eventually, the text will just kind of start ignoring Aaron, and it'll it'll skip the middleman. It'll say, Moses did this. Really, it was vicariously through Aaron, but that's how it happened, okay? Uh, especially because this is the first of the 10 plagues, this is an especially strategic target, the Nile River. 
This affected survival. It's drinking water, right? It's everything. It's sanitation, bathing and washing. It's transport, right, to uh, send cargo and stuff. It's economy for irrigation. It's commerce to grow your crops. Uh, the Nile was regarded as a god in Egypt. Uh, even though there's, uh, there's no god in their pantheon called Nile, uh, it's, there are several gods that kind of governed the Nile, but the Nile itself even was prayed to and worshipped and, uh, and, and praised as if it were its own deity, that, you know, that's, which is probably why Pharaoh seems to regularly be at the Nile every morning to join in worship, because that's what Egyptian people did. I don't think Pharaoh would feel above that. Here's a line from a hymn to the Nile that uh, historians have found. It says, um, oh, do we not have it? We don't have it. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't put it on the slides. Sorry, I'll just read it. It says, quote, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. End quote. Just part of a hymn. They sing it. They, they say that you're the giver of life. You're the sustainer of life. All that kind of stuff. To strike at the Nile was to strike at the heart of Egypt itself. Not only that, but uh, blood from, from uh, 80 years ago had to be answered for. Do you remember 80 years ago when, when Moses was born... What was Pharaoh doing? He was taking all the baby boys in the land and throwing them where? In the Nile. And oftentimes in Scripture, in the Old Testament especially, there are times when, when someone is murdered unjustly, God says, their blood cries out to me. Right? You see that first with the very first murder, Cain and Abel uh, in Genesis chapter 4. Right? The blood cries out from the ground. Well, the blood cries out from the Nile. And God is answering for that in some way. Uh, it's entirely possible that God was, was using this miracle as a reminder. Or maybe not. Maybe he just used this miracle because the Nile, like getting at the Nile is going to cripple Egypt anyway. Uh, remember, you know, Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? I don't know Yahweh, but, but God is now saying, watch. Because now it's God versus the Nile, Right? And all the gods associated with it. So now this is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, versus Hapi, the God of the Nile. And versus Anukis, the God of the cataracts of the Nile. And versus Kunum, the guardian of the Nile. And versus Sobek, the God of crocodiles and the Nile. And against Osiris, the god of life and, uh, and rebirth, uh, life, death, rebirth, whose bloodstream was the Nile. So any of those gods are on the table now, and if any of them could answer and match Yahweh's power, problem solved. God picks a fight with these gods. Verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Stop there for a sec. Was this real blood? Couldn't it? Be some kind of natural phenomenon makes the water look like blood. And in like Joel 2, I think, you know, it says the, the moon turned to blood. Well, the moon didn't turn to blood. It looks red, 
like blood. So couldn't the Nile River just look like blood? Could it not be the silt that gives it a red tinge naturally in the Nile? And if you have a a surge of that silt, then that should do it in the soil. Could it not be a red algae bloom that starts, you know, way, way up at the source of the Nile, where if you have enough of this red algae, then it should turn the water red. And it, it would, you know, create a stink and it would kill the fish. It would be undrinkable, all that kind of stuff. Look, personally, I find no reason to have to explain the plagues away as some kind of divinely orchestrated natural occurrence. I think God is saying these are signs and wonders and they will not be natural. Like, you won't have an explanation for them, because then you won't go, this was science. You'll say, this was Yahweh. Uh, This wasn't high tide from the Nile source, bringing some excessive blooming red algae, uh, looking red, stinking, killing fish, undrinkable. I think verse 19 says it uh, it was blood, and it affected even the water that was in buckets, like in, you know, vessels of wood, vessels of stone. Right? So some red algae bloom in the river will not affect the water in your cup. Something supernatural certainly took place. Uh, These were miracles, not coincidences. They were supernatural, not just surprisingly natural. Aaron struck the water. All the water turned to blood. It was blood. Not algae, not dye, not juice, blood. It means what it says. If you remember back in chapter 4, God tells Moses to do a version of this miracle Right? It's one of the three tricks that God gives them. He's going to pour some water on the ground. It'll turn to blood. There was no red algae bloom in the little bowl of water that he poured on the ground. It was a sign. Right? Uh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 9. If, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So this wasn't some isolated red algae incident or some silt incident, it turned to blood when it hit the ground. I don't think we need to try to explain it away. You don't need to try to explain a miracle and say that it was something natural. It was a miracle. This is a miracle. The Nile River, all of it from Uganda, the Blue Nile, the Adbara River, canals, pools, ponds, buckets, all turned to blood. Verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. What? So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not, even, uh, did, he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after Yahweh had struck the Nile. Okay, how can this be? How would Pharaoh not be convinced? Well, the answer is given to you because his magicians did the same thing. And that leads me to why my, my personal opinion, I'm stepping aside to let you know this is my personal opinion, is that God had chosen these three signs because these were three things that the magicians of Egypt knew how to do. I think these were, like I said, I think it's a stage show. I think it's a magic trick that the the magicians of Egypt, because they can't perform miracles. So what's their deal, right? I think God chose these uh, these things so that the magicians were like, look, Pharaoh, we can do that too. Because here's Pharaoh, right? He's like, dude, the entire Nile turned to blood. And he turns to his magicians, and he's like, fix this. And the magicians are thinking, well, if we don't, he'll kill us, right? So they're like, 
by the power of Ra. And then they, they do this little thing with the water and they turn into blood. It's one of their magic tricks, right? And they go, he's just a magician like us. He's not any different. And if I were Pharaoh, I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Why not turn the blood back to water? Right? That would be, why can't you reverse the spell? That would make more, why did you make more blood? We don't need more blood. But instead, they're like, we can also do that. That's, that's like, look, he created an immense amount of garbage. And you're like, we can make garbage too. That doesn't clean anything up. So, I think the magicians, they didn't try to turn the blood back to water by their divine powers of the gods of Egypt. I think they only knew this trick. And so they did the trick, and they're like, he's doing what we're doing. It's just, it's, you know, it's bigger. So I think these are stage tricks. That's my, my guess. I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, that's okay. I'm wrong. But I think God picked these three signs because of that. And that's going to make Pharaoh look at the, what the magicians can do. He's like, yeah, Moses is probably doing some larger scale event like this. And so this, it's not like God mind-controlled Pharaoh, but Pharaoh just looked at that, and he's, he's already unrepentant, so he just kind of uses that as an excuse. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to listen to Moses. right? I'm not going to be the, the Pharaoh that that buckles under the power of this 80-year-old guy. Well, the uh, funny thing is that the, the Egyptians, you know, the magicians, they, can, they could turn their staffs into serpents, water to blood. Those are cool tricks, right? Ladies and gentlemen, take a look at my staff, right? Nothing, nothing to it. Forward, backwards, front, back, whatever. And, and then they throw it on the ground, it turns into a serpent. They could do these tricks... And, uh, and I think that, that they do it by their secret arts. Right? I like the fact that we're, we're let in on the fact that like, the way that they do it, they don't tell anyone. Why is it secret? Because Moses is like, well, here's how it happens. I throw it on the ground, and God turns it into a serpent. What do you guys do? And you're like, oh, secret. Right? It's magic. So it's this good show, but... While they'll be able to imitate this plague and even the next one, when you get to plague number three and on, the magicians are like, yeah, we can't do that. And the magicians will, will be unable to imitate the plagues three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Why? Because those plagues don't make a good show. Like turning water to, to blood, ooh, right? Turning a stick into a into a, a snake or a serpent, ooh, that's cool. Making frogs come out of nowhere, like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, cool. Making gnats come out and like infect everyone, uh, I don't know that trick, right? Like uh, just giving everyone a disease, uh, I don't know that trick. Like we've never practiced that before. That's, that doesn't make a good show. They don't go, ladies and gentlemen, come here, leprosy, and then have a good night, you know? That's not going to work. That doesn't make a good show. That doesn't create more worshipers and things like that. So that's why they can't imitate those plagues. They could do the cool stuff, the flashy stuff, the harmless stuff, but not the stuff that starts like actually doing real damage. All right, anyway, I think that's why they imitate the staff thing and the Nile thing, the, the blood thing. After this, they can't keep up. They ran out of mana or their gods are just busy or you know, their magic is fake, whatever. But uh, they, you know, they... They're going to try to keep up. It's not going to work out, okay? Uh, this is how I think God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and I think that's the, the explanation that the text leads us toward. 
God's serpent swallowed up the magician's serpent. God uh, turned all the water into the, uh, in the Nile to blood. The magicians did like a bowl. So the comparison between God and the gods of Egypt is, uh, is incredible. It's, it, there's an infinite gap, right? And since the Nile was now ruined, everyone has to dig for new wells for drinking water. And this has to happen for seven days. Yahweh defeats Hapi. And Hapi was not a match for God. Okay? So second plague, the plague of frogs. Verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. God defeats Hapi. Now we get to chapter 8, the plague of frogs. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that you shall come up in, uh, that shall come into, into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So the people who try to explain the the plagues as uh, natural phenomena that God is kind of like orchestrating, they say, well, a natural coincidence of the Nile being flooded by some kind of silt or red algae bloom. Uh, you know, next la- logical thing would be all the frogs need somewhere to go. The fish are dying and it's, you know, the water's uninhabitable. Uh, and so the frogs all come up on land. That sounds fine, except that the Nile was like that for seven days. Where were the frogs for seven days? They would have died in the river, right? So I don't think that that works as an explanation. The frogs swarm the land. Uh, they should have come out of the water immediately. This wasn't a natural occurrence. This is a miraculous one. And this is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. And he is picking a fight with Heket, the frog-headed goddess of birth. The frog-headed goddess of birth. He's also picking a fight with Nun and Kek and He, which, which were all frog-headed gods. And the reason why they're frog-headed is because uh, frogs in Egypt were sacred. That's why you have frog-headed gods. Uh, If you stepped on a frog, they would put you on trial to see if you did it on purpose, and if you did, they'd put you to death. But now you have swarms of frogs everywhere, like in your house, in your bed, in your oven, in your kneading bowl. So they're everywhere. You cannot help but first hate the little buggers, and then second... You're going to accidentally step on one. Someone is. Frogs covered the land. Frogs on the ground. Frogs in in your home. All that stuff, right? Everyone is killing frogs. Everyone's violating their own laws. Everyone is desecrating the sacred animal. Sentencing themselves to death by the frog gods. This this is a complete call-out to the gods of Egypt, if any one of those gods could respond and deliver Egypt out of Yahweh's hand, problem solved. Verse 7, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. You idiots, like we don't need more frogs. 
how about you cast the spell that says frog to fresh water? You know, like turn them into that. What good is that? Why make more frogs? That didn't help. But they're like, yeah, that's just like a, I mean, he's just a higher level mage, you know, with the same spell, but he just put more points into that. So again, I think it's a stage trick. I think it's, it's pulling a rabbit out of a hat or a frog out of a river, however it worked, right? They knew how to make frogs appear. God was mocking the magicians. Imagine how stressed they are, right? Right? Jannies and Jambres just going backstage like, oh my gosh, he did it again, right? <laughs> what are we going to do? Just make more frogs, right? <laughs> uh, that's got to be so scary for them. And, and then like they, they do the thing for Pharaoh and Pharaoh's like, yeah, I guess Moses is just, he's just pulling a trick on us. He, I don't know how he's doing it on this big of a scale, but yeah, it's probably a trick. Then the magicians are like, oh good, he bought it. And then they go back and, you know, they just have to hope that they're okay. Verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I'll let the people, uh, I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and your servants and for your people. And the frogs will be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. Meaning, just say when. Just say when. Verse 10. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. I don't know why he didn't say right now. <laughs> that could just be pride. You know, he could be like, well, it's not that bad. Tomorrow. You know, it could be that. I don't know. Moses said, okay, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Pharaoh, uh, you know, he, he can't appeal to, uh, to Heket. He has to appeal to Yahweh. He's forced to acknowledge Yahweh right there. And then, of course, it's an instantaneous ceasing of the frogs. They all are going to stop uh, flooding the land. That's not some natural occurrence. That's, there's something supernatural there. Moses... Uh, Moses does exactly what Pharaoh says. Tomorrow and tomorrow, that's when it happens, right? Verse 12. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to Yahweh about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. I like that Moses still has to pray for it, right? He still has to ask God to do this. He, he cries out to Yahweh. Verse 13. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. So they all just simultaneously died. So the sudden emergence of frogs, the sudden instantaneous and simultaneous death of all of them, it's supernatural. So these mounds of corpses was not just the death of frogs, it was a display of the death of Egypt's gods by the hand of Yahweh. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. This guy, man, right? You'd think he'd learn his lesson, but uh, I don't know. You ever gotten yourself in a bad situation and you're like, God, like, solve this, please. I promise I'll be faithful. Then it's resolved, and then you just kind of go back living the way you were. Maybe Pharaoh's not so weird. Temptation is, uh, is in Pharaoh's heart to, you know, he sees that the problem's gone, so his need for God is gone. And he, he 
He just goes right back to his idols, to his gods. That's what we do too sometimes. Third, final plague. The plague of gnats. The plague of gnats. Uh, This is verses 16 to 19. Uh, in, by the way, if, uh, if you guys grew up on King James Version, uh, it, you'll see it's called the plague of lice. Uh, I'll talk about that. But. Then Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats or lice in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff, struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. So... Uh, after the frogs, Pharaoh's supposed to let people go. He didn't. Maybe that's why this third plague was delivered without a warning. Swarms of gnats are created, but uh, this word gnat is a little bit of a guess because there's like a Hebrew word for this tiny little bug, not really specific on what it is because it can mean gnats. It can also mean lice. It can also mean maggots, and it, it can also mean, this is, I think, the worst one, mosquitoes. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah, we, they should have translated that. <laughs> then you'd be like, I repent, right? Uh, it could be swarms of mosquitoes. Oh, I just hate saying that even. Uh, but the, uh, this gnat, the, if it refers to a gnat, an actual gnat, we just think of gnat as like living dust, right? It's just like, it just gets in your teeth when you're like riding your bicycle. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have memories. Okay, uh, this, but this gnat that they're talking about, it, it, they're these tiny little bugs, that, and they're like, they're like dust, where they're very, very hard to see. But uh, they were very invasive. They would get everywhere, into your clothing. They'd get into your eyes. They can get into your ears, and they would bite. So the gnats we think of don't bite. They just annoy. But these gnats, they would bite, and they can infect you and stuff. So this was awful. So if it's this plague of gnats, uh, it seems like that fits what's going on if God is directly and specifically picking fights with the gods of Egypt. Uh, whatever the bug is, the, the power over dust to turn them into gnats. Uh, you know, this is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, versus Geb, the Egyptian God of the earth, and versus his son Set, the Egyptian God of desert and storm and chaos, which would include like dust clouds and things. Now, this is a turning point. The magicians can make serpents and blood and frogs. These are the cool tricks. But nobody summons gnats and nobody summons mosquitoes. And nobody goes to a show where the magician's like, I'm going to create a cloud of mosquitoes. You know, pay your admission fee and come to my show. No one's going to watch that. Verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Or since the word Elohim is used there, which can be plural, they can be saying, this is the finger of the gods. Either way, they're saying this is supernatural. So they themselves are admitting this is not a trick. We can't do it. So this is actually a miracle because the first two that the magicians were doing, not miracles. All right, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Magicians are admitting at this point they couldn't do the same thing. They know this is a miracle. They know that they can't actually do miracles. So this is God or the gods. 
God has overpowered the magicians very directly. And, uh, and this has to be so crippling to the religion of Egypt because Egyptian magicians had to do complex cleansing rituals because they, Egyptian magicians were Egyptian priests. Same thing, right? The, the magicians were priests. They were the priests of the religion. Now, priest in ancient Egyptian is uab, which means pure ones. They had to stay pure. Infections and infestations disqualified them for service. If you were infected with something, you could not serve because you were not pure. So what they would do is they they would shave their whole bodies and wear linen cloths so you could see how clean and smooth they were. Do you notice in Egyptian, you know, movies and pictures and things, you know, you you see they always have the shaved head. They're very clean. They would shave their whole bodies uh, and that, that was because they were the pure ones, uab. And they, uh, they were showing that they were ceremonially fit for service. So the fact that they're infested with these, uh, with these bugs, whether they're gnats or lice or maggots or mosquitoes or whatever, they are religiously and ceremonially defiled. They're unclean. These pollutants have come in and rendered the priest's service ineffective. They can't make sacrifices. They can't make prayers. They can't enter a temple. They can't lead worship. They can't, uh, they can't chant or do anything else to bring other people to pray. Every priest in Egypt is now disqualified. The entire religious system is derailed because this is the finger of God. But it didn't matter. Pharaoh was not going to give in. His heart was hardened. He would rather tough it out with the bugs. Um, I mean, we have to stop there, but I used to wonder about these plagues, and I just thought, like, if Moses and Aaron were doing this, after a while, shouldn't Pharaoh just be like, hey, let's kill Moses? I, You know, wouldn't that work? But uh, I, I've just asked myself that question, and maybe it could be that if you kill Moses and Aaron, you make martyrs out of them, right? So now, how much do you have to deal with Yahweh? the God of the Hebrews. Because so far, the finger of God has really messed you up. What happens when he just gives you an uppercut? You know? What happens when he really gives you the full force of his anger? Not only that, but then if, if, if you martyr Moses and Aaron, not only did you infuriate their God, but there are two to three million slaves that in the beginning of this book of Exodus, it said like they were so numerous that they enslaved them because they were afraid that war would break out. And if allied nations came in while there was a revolt or something, that'd really be bad. So now you'd be dealing with a God and two to three million like ground troops. That would just be bad. So I think that's why he didn't kill them. I don't know. Now we're not done with the plagues, but and we'll have to uh, pick up next week. I want to be careful not to give a sense of closure here. Right? I don't, I don't want to be like, well, everything's good now, because it's not. The plagues are still ongoing. So I just want us to pay attention to what we've seen. God is working to reveal his person and power to Pharaoh, to Egypt, even to Israel and to Moses, and to us too, that we would know his name. Not just the sound of it and the way to pronounce it, but who he is what he's about, his person and his power. Greater than any other God, whether in Egypt, uh, you know, in Egyptian religion or 
any other God that we might give our attention to today, our attention, our money, our allegiance, our identity, whatever we say, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is me, this is my God. To any of those things, a choice has to be made, right? Will you harden your heart and continue living in service to yourself and to that God Or will you yield and worship Yahweh? Because even for the church today, God still exalts his name. It is the same deal that he's he's always had, to exalt his name. And now he's given it a much more relatable face. The name of God has been enwrapped in flesh. It's not just the name Yahweh. It becomes the name Yahweh saves. Yahshua. Jesus, Jesus, it means Yahweh saves. Do you know him? Philippians 2 verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, meaning Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is where all this is pointed. Pharaoh didn't know God's name. We know his name, and we praise his name. We know that he is Yahweh. We know that he is here. And we know that there is none other like him. And we worship him, and he is Jesus. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name. We know who you are. At your name, we don't harden our hearts, we bow down and worship. The name of Yahweh. The name of Jesus stirs in us exuberant joy, reverence and awe, gratitude, wonder. So many of us, Lord, can go to church, we hear what we need to fix, and then we come up with excuses on why that church is not for us. Our prayer, Lord, is that when we look into Scripture, And it reminds us of who you are, your person and your power. That we would repent. That we would submit. That we would believe. That we would trust in you. That we would bow down and worship. That we would confess Jesus is Lord. It started with the story of Moses and Pharaoh to set up a preview of an understanding just the beginning steps of the truth of how God is saving us how Jesus has saved us and at his name we worship so bless us with a a growing understanding of your word help us to keep exploring it with discipline and fervor and to keep finding again and again a, 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 new, a new joy to, 
to take refuge in the plan you've had from the very, very beginning, thousands of years ago, and the power that you have to accomplish what you've promised, and the glory of the destiny that you've given to us. You are the God of deliverance, the God of adoption and transformation, and the God of blessing, and we worship you. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.